Episode number 348, The Truth and Beauty, with Andrew Claven. Let's do it. This is the definitive podcast for helping you plan, create, and execute dynamic worship experiences at your church. Useful, practical content in the areas of production, worship, communications, first impressions, and more. This is Making Sunday Happen. Hey guys, this week's episode of our show is brought to you by our 1230 Kids Grand Opening Sale. This is our brand new kids ministry brand that we just launched. We have a full ready-made media library just for kids. We provide custom media, that's graphics and video, uh, and also free and affordable training for your kids, pastors, and leaders. And I'll tell you more about our grand opening sale, including 50% off our ready-made media library library for your kids' pastors in just a minute. On this week's episode of our show, I welcome conservative commentator Andrew Claven. If you follow The Daily Wire at all, that's Ben Shapiro and Michael Knowles, Candace Owens, and that whole team, Andrew was a part of starting that entire company. He hosts a, a weekly podcast called The Andrew Claven Show. He has a brand new book called The Truth and Beauty about how he researched the great romantic poets of history and how they were seeking after Jesus and how you can see that in their writing. We'll also talk about how pastors can use these poets as examples of how to seek Jesus in a culture that is increasingly against believers. This episode is a little bit of a stretch for our podcast, but Andrew is such a great mind and thought leader in the conservative space. I thought it would be I thought it would be really cool to get his perspective on the church today and more. So my chat with Andrew Claven is coming right up. Hey guys, Carl here. I want to tell you about something really exciting happening at 1230. For years, even since we've started as a ministry, we've produced custom graphics and video content for some of the biggest names in kids' ministry. Folks like Awana, Answers in Genesis, Seeds Family Worship, Yancey, Doorpost Songs, Go Curriculum, Grow Kids, Worship Team Kids, and more. We felt like God was leading us to create an entire brand dedicated to kids, pastors, and leaders. You might have heard us talk about this the last couple of months as we've been soft launching this brand to build it, and now we are proud to announce the official grand opening of 1230 Kids. With 1230 Kids, we'll be serving children's pastors and leaders in three areas. One is ready-made kids media, then custom graphics and video, and training for your kids' worship experiences. In the ready-made library, we are loading it up with hundreds of mini-movies, countdowns, games, kids' series boxes, packs, social media content, and much, much more. It's extremely affordable. You can purchase kids' media a la carte or by subscription to save you money across your year. We are already a leading provider of custom graphics and video for curriculum and other content that you might be using. And if you need custom graphics and video that you need built from scratch, we are here for you. Also with our training component, you'll hear from leading experts in the space and from real leaders in the trenches of kids ministry. 
through our Kidmen blog, our new Kidmen Try podcast, hosted by Kidmen veteran Jason Noble, books, and more. We'll help you plan, create, and execute your kids' worship experiences. We have a huge grand opening sale going on right now. We're letting the first 100 subscribers that use our code FIRST100 get our entire ready-made kids library for 50% off the normal price. Jump on it quick as it is filling up very fast. Just go to 1230kids.com slash go. That's 1230kids.com slash go. Sign up for our annual plan and enter the code FIRST100 at checkout to make our annual plan drop from $396 a year down to $198 a year. Also, this code will allow you to be grandfathered in at 50% off every single year you renew. So it's 50% off for life for you at 1230kids.com slash go. Again, it's only the first 100 subscribers that use this code. Go to 1230kids.com slash go, sign up for our annual plan, and enter the code FIRST100 at checkout. That's 1230kids.com slash go. Hey guys, today I welcome best-selling author, screenwriter, and media commentator, Andrew Clavin. He's the author of best-selling crime novels, True Crime, which became a Clint Eastwood movie. Also, Don't Say a Word and many others. He's the host of The Andrew Clavin Show from The Daily Wire. His latest book, The Truth and Beauty, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus, is available now. Andrew, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for being here. No, thanks for having me. Yeah. So you've written a number of screenplays uh, and books, uh, the Clint Eastwood movie, and uh, don't say a word, Michael Douglas uh, back in the day, uh, and also many others. So tell me how this book, The Truth and Beauty, uh, came about for you. Well, yeah, it's a little different from uh, gangsters and kidnapping and, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. and murders and stuff like that. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, it started with a conversation I was having with my son. Uh, we were talking about uh, the Gospels and I was saying that, you know, every time I kind of under- I understand what Jesus is saying, I get more joyful in my life, you know, mm-hmm. and by that, I don't mean happier. I mean, just more involved in life, living life with more energy. Yeah. And yet when I came upon the Sermon on the Mount, I realized there was a lot of stuff in the Sermon on the the Mount I didn't understand. And then once I started to think about that, I realized there were a lot of things that Jesus says that I didn't understand. And and I said, I I knew it made sense because I could just, it was just out of reach, you know, it was like out of focus. And my son turned to me, my son's a brilliant guy. He's went to Yale and Oxford, you know, he's a really, a really intelligent fellow. And he turned to me and he said, you know, I think the problem is you're trying to understand a philosophy instead of trying to get to know a man. And instantly I thought that is such a, a brilliant thing because when you know, when you really know somebody like say your dad, you know, or, or your yeah. wife or whatever, you know what they're thinking. You don't think, Oh, you know, my wife has a philosophy of life that goes like this, this, and this, but you hear her, you can say, Oh, in this situation, she would say this in this situation, she would give me this advice or whatever. And I thought that's, that's a brilliant thing to do. So I decided that I was going to try this experiment. At first, I, I taught myself how to read Greek, which was really uh, difficult. That's a really tough language. Um, and, and then I decided to read the gospels without any theology whatsoever. 
no, no St. Paul, no, uh, you know, church teachings, nothing that came after the Gospels. Just read them as if like they were a novel or a memoir where you tried to get to know this central character. You tried to think like, like, what is he saying? Who is he? How does he see the world? And as I was doing that, <laughs> the weirdest thing that kept happening was I would think like, oh, that's kind of like, I, you know, I love the romantic poets, like poets who wrote around 1800, 1815 or so. And, and I thought, that's funny. That reminds me of something I read in this poet in Coleridge and Wordsworth and Keats. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, it just kept happening until I realized that there was a reason for it. There was a reason these poets were kind of reflecting what Jesus said, even though they didn't know it, that they were certainly not, most of them were not Christians. Some of them, one of them became a Christian. One of them was, you know, it was a kind of different points of view, but they were all seeking something that Jesus had found and that they had lost. And they were trying to find it back. And I started to realize, you know, we kind of live in a time very much like they did, a time of revolution, a time of social revolution, when people are questioning God, when science is upending all our assumptions, uh, when gender roles are in question. That was happening then, too. And when people were asking whether, you know, patriotism was the right thing or should we have a revolution, was revolutionary politics, all the same questions confronted them. And I started to think, like, this is a way back in to the Gospels in a world where non-belief or unbelief has become the default setting of people's minds. And so I thought it might be helpful, you know, even if you didn't know poetry or read poetry, I thought it might be helpful to talk about not not so much just the poems, but the lives these guys led as they developed their thought in this very tumultuous time that's incredibly like our time. Ain't that the truth? Um, now, tell me a little bit about your story. You you came to be a believer, a Christian later in life, right? Uh, yeah. Late 40s, early 50s, yeah, right? Yeah, close to 50, almost 50. Yeah. yeah tell, tell me a little bit about that journey and how you came to faith. Well, first of all, you know, I, I was a, a Jew. I was raised a Jew. So the entire idea of accepting Jesus wasn't even on the table. Like, no, we never even talked about the idea that Jesus might really be, you know, the word incarnate or anything like that. That just that just wasn't a thing, you know, that you you dealt with. And But I came to find that I wanted to be a writer and I loved crime stories and detective stories and the detective stories that I found to begin with were the great ones by like Raymond Chandler, the Philip Marlowe stories, the Maltese Falcon. And all those stories kind of were based on Arthurian legend. They were based on quest stories. And so I started to read the Arthurian legends because I wanted to be a writer. So I wanted to know where all this writing came from. And obviously, those legends are just filled with Christian symbolism. I mean, the hunt for the Holy Grail is the hunt for the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper. And so I thought, well, I ought, to, I ought to find out about this. We didn't have a New Testament in the house. Why would we? You know, so I went out and got myself a New Testament. And I thought, well, I just want to read this piece of literature and find out how it fits in with the other pieces of literature. Uh, I tell in my memoir, how my father walked in on me while I was reading this and he was furious. You know, to him, Christians were the enemies. Uh, they were the anti-Semites. They were the people who made Jews lives difficult. And I always laugh about the fact that he was yelling. He, he walked in on his 15 year old son reading the Gospels and he was furious when he could have walked in on me reading a lot of other stuff. True. <laughs> yeah. And he was furious. But I, I just started to think, ah, this is the center. This story is the center of all Western literature. And. And that haunted me for years. I mean, it wasn't like I ever wanted to believe in it, but it just haunted me that, well, if it's the center, what does it mean? Why is it the center? Why can it continue to be the center, even if it's not true? 
over that time, I mean, I went through all kinds of uh, rough experiences. I really, I had a nervous breakdown when I was in my late twenties, uh, and and fought my way back from that with the help of a brilliant psychiatrist. I always tell people I'm the only person I know who went sane. I actually turned, I, like, I, I went into psychiatry as a nutcase, and I came out really happy and kind of uh, well put together. And it was only then, it was only then that I started to think, you know. What I've really been thinking all this time is that some of this stuff is true. Some of this God stuff is true. Mm. And now I'm, I'm not unhappy anymore. So it wouldn't be a crutch to examine those feelings. You know, I was always afraid that I'd be leaning on God, but he wouldn't be really there. And I would just be doing it to alleviate my misery, my mental misery. But now I was happy. You know, <laughs> so I thought, well, that's not that's a, that's a reason to maybe look at this because it fits logically. Mm. And I started to pray and it changed my life. I mean, it just completely revised my life. I wasn't praying to any particular God, just God, you know, and getting to know him over about five years. And after five years, I just looked at my life and I thought, you know, my life is now so much better through prayer. And I just said to God, you know, I'm no, you're God, I'm nobody. What, what can I do for you? You know, and instantly it came back to me almost like a voice in my head saying, you should get baptized now. And seriously, my immediate reaction was, you got to be kidding me. You know, why would I do that? And, and yet, of course, I had studied Jesus all this time as, as literature. And so I went back and I thought, well, what would happen if I read it not as literature, but as the truth? And then I saw, oh, yes, this is the person I've been talking to. This is the thing that I believe. This is the thing that I've always believed. Uh, and, and, and I just realized as a, as a matter of pure integrity, I had to become a Christian. That's interesting that it went from kind of ethereal to relationship uh, yes. with Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so you talked about learning learning Greek on your own. What are some ways? I, I was reading some some different things about you tr- trying to seek in different areas and trying to find your own thing and, and learning Greek. What are some of the other things that you dove yourself into to to know about Jesus yourself? Well, you know, like I said, when I when I read the the books, now I was reading them completely without. With almost kind of the Zen emptiness in my mind, just like I'm just meeting this guy and here he is. And I don't care what the Catholic church says. And I don't care what the Baptists say. And I don't care what any of the church says. I just want to meet this person and get to know him. And I'm good at that because I read novels all the time and I read memoirs and I read biographies. And so that was really helpful. And, and then the thing about the thing about learning a language is that it's actually a way of thinking because for in, just as an example, in Greek, there's a word that means and and but. It doesn't mean either and or but. It means both and and but. We not only don't have that word in English, we don't have that thought, you know, that we don't. We, it's mm. very hard to, to get into what it means to say but and, you know. And so when you read in, in what is the oldest language we have the Gospels in, you're actually reading more. You're actually seeing more. Mm. Uh, and it was just really illuminating. And I did it using, you know, I would talk to my son who reads Greek like like an ancient Greek. Uh, and I would, uh, you know, go through all the translations I could find and say, well, here's a, a million things this word could mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, it was a real process. And I could only do like five lines a day because it was mind breaking. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, um, so it was a real close up look. It was different. So bring us back to the romantic uh, poets yeah. here. Uh, how does that translate into, into the book and, and bring, bring that together for me? 
Okay, so so like I said, these guys were in a moment. The French Revolution had come; it had wiped away the forms of Europe, and then it had devolved into terror and revolution. So all these uh, poets who had thought, "Oh, this is the new world; paradise is coming; politics is going to solve all our problems," found like, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, no, it doesn't really work that way. Politics don't solve your problem." And so they were left with all the questions. You know, when when Pontius Pilate uh, and, and was talking to Jesus, and Jesus said, "I am the truth." I people who hear the truth, hear my words. And Pilate said, what is truth? Jesus had answered that question for our civilization. When you took Jesus out of the equation and he was falling out of the equation in that moment, suddenly that question came up again. What is truth? How do we know that our internal lives matter? Is it, is it just, this is the thing I hear from young people, especially young men today, as I hear them saying like, you know, well, you know, you think this is good and I think that's good. And who knows what the difference is? And you think this is beautiful, but I think that's beautiful. That's what they were dealing with. Mm-hmm. And they started my, my to, truth, my truth, truth. Yes, my yeah. truth. And, and, you know, we've gotten to the point where people are actually making the argument that if internally you think you're the opposite sex, you actually are, which is, of course, a nonsense, but it's hard to argue with. Right. And so these guys started to think exactly those things. Where, where is the truth? How do we find the truth? And their lives, you know, I wanted to write the book. For people who didn't know anything about poetry, I didn't want to start talking about poetry because it's hard. It's, you know, it, it separates you from what I'm saying. So instead, I told the stories of their lives, which are tragic and raucous and hilarious. And these are just great stories from the world of literature at the moment when literature, English literature was absolutely at its peak. And so I just wanted to tell those stories and show you how they were dealing with the things that you were dealing with and how that then related back to the gospel. So like at the end of the book, I take all the stuff I said about the romantics and I superimpose it on the gospels. And suddenly you can see that Jesus was actually saying something. He wasn't, mm. you know, a lot of, a lot of young people, I, I, I think approach religion as if it's a way of making you good. You're now going to be good. And if you're not good, you're going to get punished. And if you are good, you'll get rewarded. And that's not actually what Jesus was saying. And he wasn't saying, let's make the world a better place. He never said the world would be a better place. He said, the world is going to stink. You know? yeah. And if you follow me, the same people who hated me are going to hate you. You know, And so all these churches that are saying, oh, we, we're going to make the world a better place. And we're going to go out and do this. And uh, you know, we're going to tell you to be good. And we're going to wag our fingers. I don't think that's actually what is happening. I think that the, the things that Jesus said that came rose out of the Bible after going back to these poets was, I want the joy that's in me to be in you, you know, which is, I want you to have life in abundance. You know, I want you to be a branch of the vine. I want you to love your enemy, not because that's nice, not because it'll make your enemy a nice guy. I want you to love your enemy so that you will be a child of your father because he treats people. He brings the rain and the sun to the good and the bad. And like he was trying to get you to see the world the way he saw the world. That thing that my son said was exactly what he was trying to do. And these poets were struggling to do it and putting it down on paper in the greatest poetry ever written. And so so, and so that is the thing that that the reason I put these two together, the reason I said, let's just look at what these guys were doing in the ruins of Christendom, in the ruins of the place where everybody had faith. That's gone, just like it's gone today. It's not, you know, might as well not kid ourselves about it. It's gone, right? They were yeah. building that back. They were building the road back to faith, even when they didn't know that's what they were doing. So it's kind of like taking a machine apart and putting it back together yourself so you can learn how it works. So how did you see that uh, as you studied all of them, how did you see it affect their life 
in their pursuit of Jesus? And then how did that affect you and your personal? Like, oh, I'm seeing all this, and this is affecting my relationship with Jesus as well. Oh, well, the, the effect on me has been huge. But to start with the poets, uh, I mean, that is one of the things about the book that I love is that it had such a big effect on me. I'm hoping it'll have something of that on, on the reader. But, but the poets really changed. I mean, Wordsworth started out um, as a, a radical he loved the French Revolution. He thought this is going to be paradise. He said of the French Revolution, bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. You know, it was like it was Woodstock. It was the age of Aquarius. It was going to solve everything. Mm-hmm. And then he saw what happened. And he was one of the few intellects of his day who said, you know what? This went terribly wrong. This ended in the terror with guillotines. It ended in the Napoleonic Wars, which were a world war. And he changed his mind. And talk about cancel culture. He was hugely canceled. I mean, he was just attacked by everybody when he said, you know, this didn't work. We have to find a new way. And ultimately, he became a Christian. And it's really interesting because C.S. Lewis said that if you start with Wordsworth and you follow his path, you will be converted. And that's and, and it worked on Wordsworth. It worked on uh, Lewis and it worked on Wordsworth, too. You right. know, he actually did become a Christian. Keats is a really tragic figure because he died so young. We don't know what he would have become. Uh, and then there's Coleridge and Coleridge acts in this like an inspiration to every every poet is touched by Coleridge. And Coleridge was one of the most brilliant men who ever lived. I mean, he was a genius. He was also a drug addict, a hysteric, an absolute crazy man, just a broken man. But he knew everything. And he was the one guy who, from the very start, said it's all about Jesus. It is all about finding Jesus because Jesus is the is the code for how we're supposed to see the world. He's the code for how we're supposed to experience the world. And when we have him, then we start to have a way of going forward. The reason I call the book The Truth and Beauty is because yeah. Keats wrote one of the great poems, The Ode on a Grecian Urn, which ends with the urn, a work of art, saying to mankind, beauty is truth and truth is beauty. That's all you know in life and all you need to know, you know, and I've always wondered about that line because it's a very famous line of poetry. But what is it really? Is that true? You know, what does that mean? Hmm. But it turns out that when I studied him more closely and read his letters and all this, he wasn't talking when he said beauty. He wasn't talking about pretty. He wasn't talking about, oh, that's a nice sunset or I like yellow flowers and you like pink flowers or anything like that. He was talking about this absolute sensation of rightness where you and the world are sort of aligned and you see into something beyond life itself. Hmm. And that basically says to you that you are a God made machine for finding the truth. And you don't find it through your intellect. You don't find it through your emotions. You don't find it through anything. You find it through your entire experience in collaboration with the creation of God. And that's where these guys go wrong who are saying, oh, you can turn into a woman by thinking or, you know, what you think is right is right. And what I think is right is right for me. It's it's a collaboration. And all the poets ended up saying this. They all ended up saying that you are in collaboration, as, as Wordsworth put it, you're in collaboration with the one great mind, Okay, because mm-hmm. this is before he became a Christian. But he understood that there was a spirit flowing through all things and you were part of it. The effect that had on me was to make me realize that every single second you're alive, you are participating in God's creation. And that's an amazing thing that just your experience of walking down the street has never been had before. Your experience of walking down the street has never been had before, will never be had again. It is a unique work that you are making. And if you make it in collaboration with the one great mind, or as Jesus put it, if you make it as a branch of the vine, you know, he's the vine and you're the branch, then it becomes beautiful because it becomes true. And all of this stuff about be good and don't be bad is to clear away 
the fog of, of you know, lust and greed and anxiety and all the things that Jesus he said, get rid of. So you could do this task of living this beautiful, creative, full, abundant life. And the effect of this book, of writing this book, is it made me so much more aware in the moment uh, of what I'm doing and how I'm doing it in collaboration with God. That it is just, it's just a wonderful, joyous uh, feeling. You know, it doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't make me happy all the time when sad things happen. Maybe even when sad things happen, I feel them more deeply than I did before. Um, but I, but it's what uh, one of the poets, Keats, called gusto. It's this energy of life and what Jesus, I think, called life in abundance. I think it's all the same thing, this way of living. So we, talk, we talked about kind of how it relates to our culture today, uh, yeah. but, but let's move it into what you want the, the reader to, to take away. Uh, and from the romantics, you know, how, how can we apply the things that they apply to our culture today? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things before uh, the lockdowns and COVID and everything, I was going to colleges and making a lot of speeches. And toward the end, I would get up and I would say, you know, I'm an older guy, but it seems to me when I look at you young folks, the women especially are miserable. And I said, but if I'm wrong, after I'm finished with my speech, get up and tell me. That's fine. Just, you know, come up, pick up a mic. Just tell me I'm wrong. Never happened. Not one woman ever stood up and told Mm -hmm. me. Uh, she was happy. They all said, no, we are incredibly unhappy, you know? Wow. And, and I hear this from men as well. The men don't express it the same way. They kind of express it as being lost and being angry. Um, but, you know, they, they want their, their manhood, but they don't know what it's supposed to look like. How can you know? You know, manhood and womanhood are, are uh, in relationship to one another. How can you know uh, what manhood is like if you don't know what womanhood is like and vice versa? Right. And, and these these basic concepts of what you're doing in your life and who you are bring you back to the basic truths of those things in a rooted way. In other words, instead of, instead of thinking, uh, oh, I'm angry and therefore my anger is my manhood, or instead of thinking I'm miserable and so it must be just a miserable thing to be a woman, which is what I hear a lot, you start to think, oh, no, this is what I'm doing here. I am th- this part of creation. I am a part of, of God's creation, working in collaboration with the creator himself. And then you start to say, ah, that's what being a woman is about. One of the, one of the, my favorite chapters in the book is on the book Frankenstein, which was written at the same time by a teenage girl, Mary Shelley. And a lot of people say that Frankenstein, we all know the story, the mad doctor makes a monster, right? And a lot of people say that story is about a man who is trying to replace God, trying to take the place of God. And I say, it's not. It's about a man who's trying to take the place of women. It, he's creating a man without a mother. That's, that is really the problem. And it's all throughout the book, if you read it closely. And I point out that when God wanted to become a human being, and he's God. He could have just snapped his fingers and said, poof, I'm even being. The first thing he did was he picked out a mother, mm-hmm. you know? And so what, once you start to see what, what Jesus is actually telling you, all of these other things fall into place. You know, you don't have to, you know, be Will Smith and punch a guy in the face. That's not what makes you a man, you know, but, but it's all, but it, there is a thing that makes you a man. It, it is a task you've been given to be a man, because I don't know if the soul is gendered, but your body is. So you were given an assignment to be a man. Uh, you were given an assignment to be a woman. And when you face it like that and say, ah, this is a, a, my part of my part of creation, uh, yeah. my, the way that I'm made in God's image. It changes everything. It just changes everything. I, I hope I'm answering your question because I know you I are. Is, yeah. I think we come to the to the topic of hope, uh, yeah. and and I think that you you found that 
uh, and they found that the the poets did uh, in in the person of Jesus. And so I think that in our culture today, uh, not to be too uh, preachy, but I think the ho- the hope is is Jesus. Uh, and so, but pull us into that. How 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 is that? As we look at our culture today, you know, I. I'm hoping and praying that that more people can can turn to Jesus. I know that the church, especially with the COVID thing, has gotten taken a hit big yep. time attendance wise, and are yep. people coming back into church and uh, and things like that. But uh, but I still believe it, and I, I think that these these poets did as well. That, that that their hope is in in Jesus. Ultimately, it was for a lot of them, and and I think that I think the thing is is that. You know, you talk about the COVID lockdowns, and I, I was disappointed in the church uh, in the way it just yeah, shut too. down instantly when they said you got to shut down the church. They didn't say, no, we're actually an essential service. And if Walmart is open, we should be open to the very few churches did that. And and it, it made me feel like they actually didn't believe in the supernatural anymore. They actually didn't believe in this thing that we're talking about. And one of my points in this book is the supernatural is this. We're in it. We are in it right now. It's not like magic. It's not like little sparkles coming on. It's, it is this life, this, this remarkable life. And, and the, the thing about a lot of religion, I feel is that it shuts Jesus up. I I make this point at the beginning of the book that the Nicene creed, which is the basic ancient statement of Christianity says, uh, you know, we believe in Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin and he died under Pontius Pilate. <laughs> I felt like, well, that's kind of leaving out something kind of important. What happens before he was born? And, yeah. and, and this is my, my whole point in this book is Jesus was actually saying something and it wasn't be nice and it wasn't, you know, you're going to change the world. It was an entire way of seeing that is is yours actually for the asking. And, and the reason, you know, the reasons Paul said, you know, that faith is counted as righteousness. And I always, that's another kind of weird phrase I always thought about. Why? Why is faith counted as righteousness? What does that mean? And what I came to see through these poets was that this inner experience you have, that you have through seeing, through hearing, through thinking, through imagining all the things that God gave us to do to create our lives with, right? It, it means that the world is inside you. When I see a tree, the tree is in my brain, really. When I see a rainbow, that rainbow isn't out there. It's in here. When you have faith, God is in here. You know, God is, is in you. And you start to have this experience of, of that in Christian, Christian talk we call the Holy Spirit, you know, which is the, this landline between you and your creator. And so when you start to see that Jesus was actually telling you something and that it wasn't be good or you're going to hell and it wasn't, uh, you know, go out there and feed the hungry because then you'll make the world a better place. It was really this is a way to live where you will be joyful. The joy that is in God will be in you. That's a pretty good promise. You know, that's right. that's pretty, pretty nice uh, thing yeah. to get. I think you make a good point that it's in you, that it doesn't necessarily mean your circumstances. You know, if you look at the book of Acts, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're on the run constantly. Uh, the disciples are, the apostles are of, of fearing for their life. And folks like Stephen, was the, I mean, they're, and all of them died, uh, you know, for their, for their faith. So it might not be your circumstances, but it's definitely the joy inside of you, I think. Um, so let's talk to pastors. This podcast is really about the for pastors and how to uh, create great worship experiences on Sunday and that. Uh, so tell me how pastors, what they can glean from the book and how it will help them maybe preach through the gospels in a in a unique way. 
You know, uh, a great question. I, and I don't want to pick on pastors because I know what a difficult job that is. And but but sometimes I used to go to church and I would come home and my wife would say, what did the pastor say? And I would say, well, he said to be nice. <laughs> and I would think like, you know, that's actually I, I don't think that uh, the creator of the universe suffered death in order to tell me to be nice. I kind of knew I should probably be nice, you know, before that. I think what, when I was struggling to find some way of living, I, I, I tried Zen meditation for a while, uh, for years, and it was great. It was absolutely great. It actually taught me how to focus my brain. It taught me how to clear away all my anxieties and to see things. And when I, and after a while, I started to think, yes, but it's kind of a dead faith. It's kind of a dead idea because it takes you out of life. It doesn't involve you in life. And when I found Christ, I thought I could feel myself become a, more a part of life. But I thought I need a, the thing about Zen is it's all meditation. It's all sitting. It has a practice. And I thought I need a practice. I need to find a way to get closer to Jesus in, in my body, in my, in my mind. And so I started to approach church in a much different way. I started to approach church as almost like a, a meditative experience. I, I'm a uh, what's called an Anglican Catholic. I mean, we're, we're not responsible to Rome or the Pope, but it's basically the old um, the old rituals. Now, when I take communion, you know, I'm like completely immersed in this idea that I am becoming one with the body and blood of the Savior. You know, I experience life like that. And I think that maybe, you know, pastors should start to think about the fact that the kingdom of heaven, just what you said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. How do you start to tap into that? Why did, you know, why did Jesus say, love your enemies? Like, I don't, I don't really want, I don't even like my enemies. You know, why, why should I do that? You know, why did he say, you know, one of the things I start out with is all these things that seemed weird to me uh, in, in the gospels, like, Peter walks on water and then he becomes afraid and he starts to sink. And Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith. I thought, really? Because how much faith do you have to have? Like, so like, even I've never two or taken, three steps. Yeah, pretty good. Like, like even one step. I'm, yeah. I'm, you're, I'm impressed. And maybe like explaining some of this. Why would he say that? Why did he say it? And maybe pastors have to start to think that through again. The problem with theology, I mean, I love theology and I love reading theology, but the problem Problem with it is it sometimes cuts off new and original ways of thinking about things. Jesus stays the same, but we change, our times change, our consciousness changes. And maybe the fact that I came to faith so late, you know, it's kind of like it takes away from me a tradition that other people have who are born into the faith, a connect, an instant connection. But it gives me a way of sometimes saying, you know, maybe you need to look at this again. Maybe you need to look at this in a fresh way for a fresh time, not because it has changed, but simply because a world in which, you know, I can click a button on my telephone and get every piece of porn that's ever made is a different mm -hmm. world than the world we were living in even 30 years ago. Right. And so, and so I think that like pastors need to engage with that inner experience. That's what these poets are writing about. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. When he says the kingdom of heaven is within you, he means it. He means it. It's a collaboration between you and your creator. And I, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a theologian. I don't know how they get to that. But it seems to me if you speak more into the inner heart of the people you're talking to and less about, um, you know, I, I don't know, whatever, going to hell or dancing around, waving your hands in the air and saying how blessed you are, you know, because I don't always feel that way, you know, if you if you talk more about what is this relationship with God, what does it look like? You know, um, I mean, sometimes 
I, I, again, I don't want to complain or pick on that. You know, I, I, I can hear a great worship song. I know there are some wonderful worship songs, but sometimes they just seem to demand that you be happier than you are or that you feel closer to God than you do, you know? I want to do that every day. I want to get a little, just a little closer every day. And again, if it's walking down the street and knowing that this is an original experience that's happening in collaboration with my creator, that's fine, you know, whatever it is. But I think that in church is where I go to enhance that experience and to then take that home with me into the world. And so I guess if pastors could think a little bit more about what they're offering, what is Jesus offering? You know, what is he offering? He's not just offering eternal life. He's offering life in abundance. And that's, that's a, a really different thing. It's a really uh, fresh, original uh, thing that he gave us that I'm not sure you can get any other way. Yeah, good. All right. Well, as we close today, I have a a handful of rapid fire, random rapid fire questions <laughs> okay. for you. Can Uh-oh. I hit you real quick? Yes. All right. Here we go. All right. Number one, what is it like having your books turned into movies? Is there a favorite uh, that you have? Uh, well, I, the best um, movie I ever wrote was called Shock to the System, which I didn't write the book. I actually adapted it from another guy's book. When you see your own book made into a movie, it's kind of a weird experience because it's not the thing you wrote on the one hand. On the other hand, it is kind of bizarre that something that you conceived of alone in a room and put down on paper and created is suddenly being piped into like the girl on the plane next to you through her headset. <laughs> right, you know? right. And so and it is this kind of feeling of exposure. Um, there's a sense in which, um, uh, you know, you feel very gratified by it, but also a sense in which you feel very distant from it. I guess that's the best way to put it. Mm. The famous uh, one, one quick thing, yeah, the famous. Uh, famous crime writer James M. Cain, one of the greatest American crime writers ever, had all these all his books were made into terrific movies. And somebody once said to him, uh, how do you feel about what Hollywood did to your books? And he said, Hollywood didn't do anything to my books. They're right over there on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a very healthy attitude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is nice. Is there one? I, I mean, you've had a couple of high profile I mean, Clint Eastwood and uh, yeah. Michael Douglas and uh, and a couple others um, that you've that you've uh, really done. Do they do they rip it apart? I mean, do they? Like, oh, I didn't write it that way. That's uh, it fits together like that. You didn't do it right. There's there always some like moment like that. There's yeah. always some moment like that. I mean, I'm the sure. end, the end of uh, "Don't Say a Word" is one of my favorite parts of any of my books, and it's just one long fight between a little intellectual and a gigantic monster, and it's just you know trying to because he, he's trying to save his daughter, so he's got yeah. an, an extra. And I found it very moving. I found it moving to write. I still find it moving when I look back at. They just cut it out and put up a big shoot 'em up and you know, yeah. like fancy play. And so yeah. you kind of you know get your teeth and uh, and the other the other. Thing in the Clint Eastwood movie, he's a reporter and he's a terrible person, but he's begun to suspect that a guy is going to be put to death unjustly. And he says to somebody, I don't care about right and wrong. I don't care about good and bad. I don't care about Jesus. I don't care about anything. All I care about are the things that happen. And it, and it's a, a way of looking at the world. Mm. And they changed that in the movie to all I all I know is I have a nose for news. And I just thought, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, it was like the, the moral it. core I already the wrote book. it. Right. Right. Did you change? <laughs> all right. No, number two, who is someone from history that you'd love to meet? 
Oh man, John Keats, who's one of the poets I talk about in this, I, I sometimes feel that uh, if I get into heaven, uh, he'll be the guy who greets me there. I felt so close to him as a young man in writing this book. He lived such a tragic life, but such a beautiful life in so many ways, uh, and wrote the be he wrote the best English poetry since Shakespeare. I think I can safely say that, that there's Shakespeare, and then there's Milton, and then there's Keats. Mm -hmm. And um, and I just would, would love to, to see him, you know. All right, number three, what is your proudest accomplishment? Oh, yeah, yeah you know, my family, probably. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I was, I was my, my marriage is a literal gift from God. My wife and I constantly joke about how we did everything wrong, uh, but we have been deeply and romantically in love with each other for over 40 years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, yeah, yeah, so it's, it's quite a thing. And I love yeah. my kids so much. And I think, you know, you, mm. I, it's, it's hard to be proud of it because I really feel it was a gift, but, but still. Good. All right. Two more quick hits. Uh, number four, is there a TV show that you're embarrassed to say that you watch? <laughs> yes. Chicago PD. Uh, <laughs> it's like, okay. I, I watch it on the elliptical uh, and it's like it, I always I tell my wife that there's nothing more dangerous than being a friend of one of the cops on Chicago PD, because the only way the writers can figure out to get you to care is to kill off one of their friends. <laughs> it's no. like, so you, you know, if you start dating one of them, you're a dead man. You know, <laughs> <laughs> no, the plot lines. All right. However, last... the, the lead is a great actor. So I love watching him. Yeah. Nice. All right. Last one for you. Who's your favorite Daily Wire personality besides yourself? <laughs> Me. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I can't actually answer that and go back, but they all have something that I, I love. Knowles, I'm kind of proud of Knowles because he started out as his career started as the guy who wrote my Twitter feed. Uh, oh, okay. And, I, and I used I used to tell him that he did it so well that I actually used to look at his tweets to see what I sound like. You know, because he mm. did such a such a great imitation of me, and he's done so well. And uh, his his book is wonderful too, speechless. Um, and uh, so I'm I'm really proud of him. And of course, you know, Shapiro is what made the you know the the thing started. The Daily Wire started with me and Shapiro uh, in a in a Jeremy Boring's pool house on a card table doing these 15 minute podcast and it was really uh shapiro's appeal that made the thing explode like that so i have yeah. uh, you know and and walsh makes me laugh so. <laughs> well you guys have been doing a great job especially creating content uh more conservative leaning content that's really um you know hollywood can't own it all and the the left can't can't have everything and I, i'm really happy that you guys have really come in and, and are creating content that's an alternative um, and you guys have written a couple of movies lately. They're a little bit dark, uh, you know, more kind of a horror bent. And um, I, uh, who's the lady from uh, from Star Wars? Uh, Gina Carano, Gina right? Carano, yeah, um, yeah that, that you guys are doing some stuff with. So I, I applaud what you're doing. I, I keep up with you guys. So thank you for for offering that because people are, are listening and, and uh, engaging with it every day. It's a great alternative. So well, thank thanks, you for man. what you're doing for me too. Yeah. yeah, man. And uh, awesome. So man, thank you for your time. Really appreciate the insight. Um, uh, go get the book, everybody, the truth and, and beauty it's available now. Uh, how can we keep up with you uh, on your website or, or how can we get the book? Yeah, you can get the book on Amazon. If you get it, I, some people don't like Amazon, but if you get it there, it helps me because it raises it up the, uh, the ranks. Yeah. Um, and you can find me either at uh, andrewclavin.com or at andrewclavin on Twitter. And I have a podcast every Friday on the Daily Wire, which is available wherever there are podcasts. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you for your time, man. Really appreciate it. It's great talking to you, Carl. When creating and presenting worship slides, 
never use repeat language or hymnal directions. If you sing one line repeatedly, it should be on one slide and the one slide should be duplicated in your presentation software. Don't put directions like repeat three times or sing chorus again, men only this verse, nothing like that. Just lyrics. The show notes for this episode are available now at makingsundayhappen.com. Hey guys, you can follow us online at 1230 Media. We're on all the socials. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and all of our social media channels so that you never miss an episode and so that you can get some free training for your team. Next week, I'll be talking with Ron Hunter. Ron is the co-founder and director of the D6 Conference. He's also the CEO of Randall House and D6, which is a family discipleship ministry that produces incredible curriculum for all ages. I'll be talking with Ron about family discipleship on Sunday and beyond. Ron has some great insights on families and how to incorporate the same teaching for all ages in your church at the same time. Ron and the D6 team have become fast friends of mine, and you'll enjoy hearing from Ron next week. We'll go out there and create some incredible worship experiences at your church this weekend. I'll catch you next week. Making Sunday Happen is a production of the Ministry of 1230 Media. For show notes, archive episodes, and more free resources for your church, visit makingsundayhappen.com. 